I'm Mark Williams-Cook and this is SEO in 2023. Mark, what's your number one SEO tip for 2023? My number one SEO tip is to build a majority of your content research around zero volume keywords and intent proximity rather than monthly search volume and related keywords. Okay, so the key question, why optimize for no traffic? <laughs> yeah, right. So the there's a few points here. And the first one is that when we talk about zero volume keywords, we are not literally talking about keywords that have no searches a month. What we're really talking about is the gaps of information that exist in the tools and data we have access to. So when they don't know how much traffic a particular search term gets, it will be shown as zero. And I've encountered loads of people, pro SEOs, people working in-house um, that will just discount these. And there's lots of good reasons why we shouldn't be doing this. And I think this goes with a bigger trend of, from a content point of view, from an SEO point of view, we need to think outside of kind of individual key phrases that we're optimizing for, because there's, there's lots of ways to write the same query in Google in your search term that means the same thing. So it may be, yes, that, you know, me searching for my blue men's running shoes only has a few searches a month, but I could rewrite that same search query 20, 30, 50 different ways. And each, if each one of them only has five or 10 searches a month, you're quickly in the 250, 500 searches a month for something that would have maybe been completely overlooked. So how big is this opportunity? I mean, what kind of percentage of um, keywords out there that, that do have search volume, but obviously no listed keyword volume? actually can deliver traffic? That, that wasn't a very worded, a very nicely worded question, but essentially <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to define how big the opportunity is. Yeah, so the top line is the majority. So it depends which data you look at. There's been really old data from Hitwise that people still refer to. I think it was from like 2006 that said around 70 or 80% of all searches that happen fall into this category that we call long tail, uh, which are you know, the long tail just refers to how the actual graph looks if you visually display all of the keywords versus their search volume. And lots of the kind of modern SEO platforms have, have reported actually that around 90% of the keywords that they track, there's less than 20 searches a month for a lot of these search terms. And there's lots of reasons for this. It's actually partly as well due to the change in behavior of users that we've seen over the last even decade and even longer. So really interestingly, when search engines were a bit more basic, people would do a lot more searches that were maybe one word or two words because the algorithms are a lot more basic at actually finding that information. Now people know if they're really specific in their searches, the technology actually exists for them to get better search results. So it, it's actually when we're doing our keyword research, we still need to look at monthly search volume, especially when we're doing things like site structure and how should categories be structured. But when it comes to actually, okay, we're, we're producing kind of most of our content here, we need to realize that people are doing specific searches. And if we write specifically to answer all of the kind of branching questions that a single intent has, we're going to rank better. And ultimately, we're going to satisfy the users better. 
So the size of the opportunity is potentially massive. As you say, more than 50% of keywords that we actually know about that have volume. Does this mean when we're focusing on longer tail keywords without any obvious search volume that it's actually easier to rank for these keywords than trying to rank for keywords with higher volume? At the moment, I'd say that's definitely true. And partially over the last very recent kind of time scale, like the last few years, we've seen some updates Google's made such as BERT, such as passage indexing, that I think personally have increased the opportunity for these kind of really specific key phrases to rank. And certainly we've seen that. So we, we're now what, two weeks into this helpful content update. And a lot of people I know have been looking at these particular type of spam sites that have been created around mining Google's people also ask questions and scraping or generating results for them. Some of those sites have gone from zero traffic to over a million visitors within kind of eight to 12 weeks. So that would certainly indicate that the potential is there to rank very quickly, which is also what makes it quite an important, I think, thread of SEO strategy for the majority of websites, because the majority of websites can't rank for big head terms easily, especially if they're new. Whereas this strategy gives an opportunity for meaningful search traffic to even much smaller websites very quickly, if they can just research and produce the content effectively. So, I mean, if, if people have, um, if SEOs have dived into people uh, also asked, you're also asked service, then they can quickly find themselves probably drowning in hundreds, thousands of potential opportunities to rank for. How do you suggest that an SEO or a content marketer goes about selecting which phrase to write for, given the fact that they're all zero volume, so it's, it's, it's not possible to categorise them that way? Yeah, so this is a really interesting question. So there's a couple of steps I use here. So once we know what topic we're writing about, I generally try and find what I call a kind of a root question first. And that might be not zero volume, but just low volume. And there's loads of ways to go about this. So if you have things like live chat on your website or a site search, that's a really good way to see what specific questions people who are already engaged with you are asking and making sure you have the content to answer that. You've got other tools such as Answer the Public that use Google Suggest, which is, is different to a tool like Also Ask because it will give you a bird's eye view of a topic which all of the questions aren't necessarily related in intent, they're just thematically related. That's a really good place to get that start root question. And the reason I'm such a fan of the people also ask data, whether you get it manually from the search, whether you use one of the free tools, whether you use also asked, is because of this what I call intent proximity. So if you put in an initial question, so say it's something like does pet insurance cover dog poisoning? So something specific like that that someone's searching for. If you put that into a traditional keyword tool around pet insurance, all it's going to do is essentially give you a list of questions that contain the word pet insurance. So they're all thematically related. But they're not close in this intent proximity. And by intent proximity, I mean someone has asked a question and to fulfill their search journey, their whole intent, they'll probably need to ask 
maybe two, three, four, five questions. So if you put that type of question into a people also ask, you'll see that one of the closest related questions is something like, uh, what does a vet do with a poisoned dog? Because that's what the person wants to know. They're panicking that their dog may, might be poisoned. So they're Googling if their insurance maybe covers it and maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. And the next thing they want to know is, well, what will the vet actually need to do? Is it something I can do? But it doesn't have the word pet insurance in it. So the answer to the question of how do we know which ones to select is once you've got this root question, using the people also ask specifically gives you this mirror from Google about what they are expecting users to ask. And apart from actually just the raw questions, to me, the most powerful part of that data is the relationships between those questions. And very interestingly, the results you get from people also ask will differ depending on your start point. So if you do that search, for instance, around the pet insurance and you get four or five questions and then you click on one of those questions, you'll get some more questions. If you started the query from that second level, you actually get a different set of questions. And that's because it's showing you, Google's learnt there's maybe a slightly different intent path, therefore there's different intent proximity to other questions. So that's how I like to determine, at least at a starting point with other data points, what should we include, what questions should we answer, what topics should we cover in a particular article. Now, the next stage is, I guess, deciding on specifically what content to write, how to actually answer the question that you're trying to actually answer, uh, what form of content to use. And I, I like your example, what would that do with a poisoned dog? Uh, the reason I like that particular example is people are looking for a very specific piece of advice and they don't want to delve through an article about dogs in general to actually try and find the answer. Does that mean that um, there should be one question for one page and you should actually have separate pages for every single question that you try to answer? So the, the short answer to that is, is no. I don't think we should be creating separate pages for every single um, question, simply because in a lot of cases, the proximity of the intent means that if you just answer three or four of the questions that are closely related on the same page, that's better for the user because they're going to want to know that next thing. So don't give them extra burden, don't add extra friction and make them click and make them wait for another, you know, the latency of another page load. Obviously there comes a, a sensible point at which uh, point you stop answering questions but this is why we, I like to try and group together okay these questions are all very related and it comes down to how you lay out your page so if you're using things like header tags smartly it should be easy for someone to scan read that content so even if they're interested in the second or third answer you have they can easily see that within a few seconds on the page and that's faster for them to do than click on individual links to each of those pages. Ideally, you want Google to perceive your answer as the authoritative answer for that particular question, to perhaps feature your answer as a featured snippet within the SERP as well. What are some ways that you can try to make that likely to happen? Yeah, so there's lots of tactics you can use for the actual optimization of the content. So especially where maybe you've got this um, kind of advice that goes against of should we have a succinct answer that's good for the user or, you know, do we write a really detailed answer because that's showing expertise. And you can achieve both those things a lot of the time by taking some examples of how, for instance, newspapers write stories. So if you have a particular question, you can give a 
kind of one paragraph summary of the answer and then go into the detail below that. So you're giving search engines an easy job to understand this is the answer to this question and it's small enough that I can show it in a featured snippet and you've got the kind of longer answer there to cover off other search terms and you know give the users that do want more information that that answer you've got other things as well such as structured data you can use so using things like um, FAQ page schema obviously will increase your chances of getting rich results for those questions that you're answering also, I think you mentioned already looking at the format that is already being used to answer those questions. So Google's really helpful when you when you put in a question, is it showing images? Is it showing a video? What kind of format is the best way to answer that for a user? So again, really great example I've seen on like tourist websites is when people are searching for things like the height of the shard. And when you delve into the questions there, the people also ask questions, you see some people searching for how high it is in feet, some people for meters, and then a whole host of people searching for how tall is the Shah compared to like the Eiffel Tower. And it may be because, you know, 220 meters doesn't mean a lot to some people. Um, they can't imagine that. But maybe they're a tourist and they they're from france and they know exactly how high the eiffel tower is so showing that in an image format actually is really helpful for them so again using multiple different types of format the right format for the answer can increase your uh, chances of kind of appearing highly for those kind of terms great thoughts okay what about if you work in an organization that um, is very metric driven and maybe a little bit traditional in terms of targeting keywords and uh, looking at how much search volume are available for certain keywords. How is an SEO, do you justify spending time on focusing on zero volume keywords? And then just a, a second little follow up to that question, ROI, the typical question is fairly top of funnel. Um, it's, it's not very purchase driven or in, in purchase intent driven. So what kind of ROI do you look for um, from people landing on your pages from top of funnel questions? Yeah, brilliant, brilliant questions. So it is an education piece for SEOs that they need to advocate for internally. And there's lots of ways they can present this to different stakeholders, depending on who they're talking to. So firstly, the Traditional strategy of yes, okay, we're going to look at these key phrases because they got this search volume and therefore if we rank position one, two or three, we'll get this much traffic which contributes to our, our target of this. That's fine. I think visually demonstrating to people how they are targeting the minority of search terms is helpful there, that they are leaving, you know, factually the majority of searches on the table that those search terms are in a way zero-sum games you're playing, meaning that, okay, if you've got your 20,000 a month search term and you do manage to knock whoever is ranking position one off, they're not going to go, oh, well, never mind, that was really nice when we ranked position one. They're going to fight you for it. And therefore, realistically, you need to, once you've caught up with them and outworked them, you're going to need to budget and account for the fact that they're probably going to up their game and up their input into trying to win that ranking back. So it becomes quite an expensive way to compete. The next, in terms of tactics, when you start asking the questions, okay, these are our high volume commercial keywords that we know that convert and they have search volume. How are we going to do things like build links to these pages? Because 
in almost all cases that I've encountered, it is very difficult to directly do things like build links, for instance, to pages that are commercially driven, because you're essentially asking people to, you know, sell for you or, or link to very, you know, commercially focused pages. The strategy you can take with the top of the funnel is those pages, because they're more value driven, tend to be much easier to attract links um, whether you're doing a specific campaign around them or whether naturally people are finding them and just referencing them on other websites in forums and linking to them because they're helpful, you then actually use those pages to internally link to your commercial pages to increase those rankings. So the other kind of last part of that in terms of strategy would be in the bigger marketing picture and where SEO fits in here, I would say the gold standard of marketing is around brand building. So the ideal is rather than people Googling your product or your service, they're Googling your brand and then the product because they know you are the number one and they want it from you. You know, I'm not Googling running shoes, I'm Googling Brooks or Nike running shoes because I know they're the best. One of the ways you can do that is through helpful top of the funnel content and you're getting that brand exposure, winning that affinity with customers. You're helping them with that, you know, when they are panicked about their poisoned dog and then you've relieved them and then they're going to share that answer in the future. So you started to build that affinity to them. So in terms of measurement, generally as well, you'll start to see results from the zero volume type pages a lot faster so you can sometimes see results within weeks of publishing that content and it stacks up very nicely you can start seeing links coming in and then you can start measuring if you're going to link to a specific set of your commercial pages how that's impacting performance longer term there so i'd say there's a lot of very good commercial reasons to go after that they're just not as obvious from step one when you're putting everything on a spreadsheet, but the value is definitely there. So congratulations to um, vets-now.com. <laughs> we ranked number one for what will a vet do with a poison dog? And they actually have two um, results. They have um, an initial um, featured snippet and then obviously the, the number one underneath that as well. And, and that's from a piece that was actually published on the 1st of February 2017. So long time ago. So you, for these kind of long tail keyword phrases, you can get long ta- long term rankings for that. So absolutely definitely worthwhile doing. Mark, you've shared what SEO should be doing in 2023. So now let's talk about what SEO shouldn't be doing. So what's something that's seductive in terms of time, but ultimately counterproductive? Something that SEO shouldn't be doing in 2023. For me, I know it's a little bit controversial, but it's the regular disavowing of links, which some third party tools label as toxic or bad links. Wow. Okay. Um, and we talked briefly about that beforehand. And um, I was surprised that that was um, still a thing because I hadn't heard too many people about it. But uh, you said that um, many people are still doing it. Yeah. So I've, I've seen it happens. It tends to happen as far as I've seen in two different cases. One, there are some practitioners who will on a monthly basis assess and disavow links. And from my point of view, what I've seen even with sites that I know have intentionally bad links and from what we've heard from Google is the way they tend to deal with that is actually just ignore those links rather than apply kind of a negative weighting to them. And I can understand why they do that because if Google applied some kind of negative weighting to a quote unquote bad link, they would create a very easily manipulatable system and, and a whole economy really for it's very easy to damage your competitors websites because you just 
you know, spam bad links to your competitors rather than try and add value yourself. So by just simply ignoring them, they don't create that kind of bad economy that's going to make their job harder and SEO's jobs harder. And they they negate any kind of easy way for when you're buying links or spamming links to know if they are working or if they're not working. So that that's kind of the thing. Even if you buy links, you know, but and you know, PBNs buying links, etc., does still work in some cases. You can see that. But the difficulty comes with over the years, those links may get ignored, and you don't know because you're not getting that notice saying, "Oh, well, you've got a penalty for these links or this type of linking." It just silently gets ignored. And for me, SEO is all about building equity over the long term. So the great thing about some of the stuff we've talked about is. It's all user centric. Everything you're doing, even if search engines didn't exist, is adding value to your website and your brand. Whereas this is an activity that I don't think is doing that. The other case is where there's kind of a one-off bigger disavow, which I'm less worried about. Some people have shown some, maybe some anecdotal you know, results where they've seen an uplift after doing this. And it is reversible as well. So you can put things in a disavow and take them out. Again, I've, I've seen varying results. Google says you can just take stuff out the disavow file and it goes back to being counted. But then I've seen some people run experiments where they disavow all links and then remove the disavow file and things don't seem to come back to exactly how they were. So disavowing for me is something that I don't touch unless there is a known problem. So we've had a message from Google saying we've got bad links and we need to do something about it. Mark Williams-Cook is director at digital agency Candor, and you can find him over at withcandor.co.uk. Mark, thanks so much for being part of SEO in 2023. Pleasure. Get your copy of SEO in 2023, the book, over at seoin2023.com. Hold up. 